Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Welcome. You're listening to Nerdette Recaps Game of Thrones with Peter Seigel, a special series from Nerdette Podcast. To hear past episodes of Nerdette, you can subscribe on iTunes and find us on Stitcher and SoundCloud. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita, and we're joined by Peter Seigel, whose love of Game of Thrones is paralleled only by Tyrion Lannister's love of wine and his hatred of small boxes. There is a um, note here in my script. It says, Peter says clever things. <laughs> No pressure. I got nothing. I will say that part of me wants to throw this whole thing over the side and just talk about Daredevil on Netflix. You know what? Which is I'm my new jam. You. I'm with you. Your Let's do jam. it. All right. We can talk about that later. But it's, let me just say that if you're getting tired of waiting, you know, <laughs> a week for another Game of Thrones episode to nerd out on Marvel's Daredevil on Netflix, it's the bomb. I did have a moment this morning where I was like, but could we just talk about Daredevil? So I'm, I'm glad we got the mention in. Right, That's very good. important. Moving on. Today we are rehashing Season 5, Episode 2 of Game of Thrones. It was called The House of Black and White. And this is where I warn all of you people out there, if you haven't seen Episode 2 of Season 5, you probably want to stop listening. Or maybe you just love spoilers and that's fine too. Why would they even be listening to this? I do read uh, Outlander recaps and I don't watch the show. <laughs> I like the recaps. We should probably devote some time, not right now, to the whole weird culture of recaps. Yes. Because what? Well, here we are, Peter. I know. It's like reading the cliff notes instead of the book for your Russian lit class, but it wasn't an assignment. So why are you taking the fast road towards the story? I don't understand. There was a subgenre of really funny people like David Reese who would recap really strange shows that I would never watch. And their recaps of these, like exactly. The Bachelor or something. Exactly. Or Single Island or whatever was up going on in Fox you know, Entertainment, <laughs> whatever it was called, like Adultery Island, whatever the hell it was. Sure. Those were funny. I mean, I do it. I'm like, oh, I'll watch a TV show. Now I'll read a long essay recapping what happened in that thing I just watched. Yeah. No, it doesn't make any sense. It was I... kind of necessary for The Wire because I didn't always know what was going on in The Wire. And it was nice to, <laughs> to find out, oh, that was that guy who did that thing. But... What is this, crazy? Well, I really love just skipping the episode altogether and going right to the recaps. Roxanne Gay writes the ones for Outlander. It's either either a time saver or a complete waste of time. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. There I was thinking I saved all this time. But in the interest of talking about spoilers, are we going to do this book thing right now? Should we talk about this right this second? We should should make it clear that we're not just spoiling season five, episode two of Game of Thrones. We may, so we're warning you up front, spoil things that happen in the books that have not yet happened in the show. And my argument for why that is acceptable is if you really were that emotionally invested in what's happening in the future, you should read the books. Yeah, so it's your fault. Don't you think? Well, I do. But to me, I mean, I'm perfectly happy to be merciful on those people who haven't gotten around to reading the books. They're thick. However, my interest in spoiling the books is, as people might have already gathered from our first two episodes, my particular obsession is getting inside the heads of the showrunners and the writers as how they're creating characters, how they're structuring scenes, Etc. And one of the big challenges for them is how to handle the books and if they should change from the books. So to me, it's very hard for me to think about the show in an interesting and analytical way without thinking about that topic. So I'm going to go there. I'm just warning you all. 
We will try to give fair warning, though. I think yes. that's the least we can do. We did hear from a very concerned listener via Facebook, and we had someone reenact this message. Please, please, please don't include book spoilers. I was so excited to see you guys were doing Game of Thrones and would really like to listen. But I can if you include book spoilers. I literally shrieked on the bus when Peter started to discuss something that happened later in the books, terrifying a couple people around me, skipped three minutes, and was afraid to listen to the rest of the episode. I watched the show with eight other people, and we were very strict on spoilers not being allowed. If you're going to include stuff from the books, please, please, please include a disclaimer at the beginning of the episode, so I know to skip that one. I think a lot of your fans would be grateful. It does kind of break my heart to picture this this young man shrieking on the bus. <laughs> I gotta say. I, I do I, think, though, that this then is the fair warning. Do you think that really happened? Because everybody says, I was shrieking in the bus, I was crying in the bus. When's the last time you were in a bus and somebody in the back was started going, Ah! 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 You spoiled the book! Ah! I mean, I've ridden enough Greyhounds and Megabuses to say that there's usually somebody shrieking somewhere on the bus. <laughs> For different reasons. <laughs> Excluding the paranoid schizophrenics. <laughs> All right, let's dive into this episode. Oberyn is dead. You don't have to remind me. The house of black and white. This is where you'll find the man you seek. It's a threat. I will burn their cities to the ground if they touch her. All they understand is blood. All right, season five, episode two, The House of Black and White. I feel like this was the most boring episode so far of season five. There's two. <laughs> I know. So one of them is going to be the most right. boring. Yeah, this is and it. And one of them is going to be the most interesting. I'm just saying this is it. Okay. It's your Why? second least favorite. I mean, like, I to me, know. it was just, okay, we're moving more pieces forward. I mean, as I said the last time, this isn't really great episodic TV. So each episode has to be judged not, is it a good episode, but what do we see about these characters? Was that a good character moment? You know, was that a nice acting moment? Was that a good bit of writing? And I thought this had more interesting scenes than the first one. I will continue to complain about the poor episodic nature of this show. <laughs> right. And maybe we can just attribute it to our rack butt count. Right. None. Which is zero. Remains, which is zero. Remains at uh, what it was last week, which it was Weird, three guys. butts and uh, three racks. We were, I think, even going into this. None right. this episode. Yeah, which is strange. Greta and I were talking before we got on the mics about the, how could that possibly be? How can you have an right. episode How did they let of, that happen in the yes, editing room? Yes, I mean, really, the, like an oversight. Because, I mean, on this show, they will just have a conversation walking by a brothel just to get some <laughs> racks in it. And they didn't do that in this episode. It was strange. This was a little more titulating for the people who love violence, though. We yes. saw a lot of heads cut off. We saw a lot of throats cut some by people who we were excited to see that happen. I like watching Brienne ride her horse and knock out, you know, knights for hire who I don't know their name and don't have to care about them. So that was fun to watch that scene. But I was worried, to be honest, when it was another new scene beginning with just Podrick and Brienne. As much as I love them both, I was like, again, we got things to do, people. They're just on their way somewhere. And then we see... What do we have to do? We got places to be where plot's going to happen. <laughs> like what? I mean, I do feel like those two kind of just rehashed the same angst that they had first time around. Yes, although they're at least on the move. I mean, the when we True. checked in with them in episode one of this season, they were like, what are we going to do? And now we know what they're going to do. I will say about this that I, lo I mean, when I said that this episode had more interesting individual scenes, one of them was the scene in which Brienne uh, boldly, perhaps stupidly, walks up to Sansa, falls on one knee and pledges her fealty, 
which was a moment where for probably the first time I felt profoundly that Brienne is kind of dumb. <laughs> because yeah. seriously, yeah. it's like, woman, get a life. What yeah. are you going to do? You're just going to walk around and pledge your fealty to like the next person who happened to inherit it without knowing who that person is or what they want? Or if they're worthy at all of exactly. the same noble treatment. Yeah. And Littlefinger's sort of repost to her, which was, let's see, you swore to protect Renly. He He's was dead. killed by a shadow. Yes. Yeah, a shadow. That, that sucks for Brienne. Yeah. Man. You can't explain that. Yeah, yeah, that's bad. I mean, for example, I've been maintaining that it was a shadow that looked like Stannis that stole Ian Chillog's lunch last week. But <laughs> yeah. nobody how's believes that, how's me. How's that working for you? <laughs> yeah. But just the fact that Brienne is kind of a pathetic figure when she has been such, shall we say, a heroine of this series was a great moment. And to me, it's like, yeah, maybe she's not the smartest. Or at least she's got certainly a need that she's being foolish about trying to fill, which do I think you, you can say of a lot of people. Do you and, think she's too good? One of the things, of course, that the show is about and has been about ever since we chopped off Ned Stark's head is about the difficulty of applying principles of being good to the actual world. Well, insofar as this is the actual yeah, world. We're, not we're, a calling, we're calling the Seven Kingdoms the, the actual re- world. And in fact, there. it just so happens that I read an interview from last year that uh, Grimm do we agree that it's yes, Grimm? Somebody wrote in to say that it turns out that George R. R. Martin refers to it as Grimm, G-R-R-M. Well, he gets to decide. He does. I call myself Gumja, so here we are. There you are. That Grimm did an, episode, did an interview with Rolling Stone in which he discussed this very thing. Uh, his example was in Tolkien, and we had talked about his take on Tolkien and his advancement of those ideas. He said, Tolkien says, well, Aragorn reigned for 100 years and was a good and wise king. And then Grimm goes on to say, well, what does that mean? Right. What was his tax policy? What did he do about the orcs? Mm -hmm. Did he fight the orcs? Did he go exterminate the orcs who were hanging out in the mountains? That would be a bad thing to do. Did he, as he says, kill the little orc babies in their little orc cradles? His point is, is that you can say you're going to be good and wise, or in Brienne's case, you're going to be loyal and steadfast. What does that mean? In Brienne's case, it's basically now she's following around this teenager who does not want her around trying to serve her, which may be noble, but is also stupid. Yeah, I kind of wonder if it means she's doomed. You don't know. You just don't know. What else did you guys not like or like in this particular episode? I like that we're seeing Sansa for the first time sort of have her own opinion. So she doesn't just say no, Brienne, because Littlefinger says no. She says, you bowed to Joffrey at the wedding. Yeah. Go away. Yeah. And I thought that was a great moment for her and her fighting back with Baelish a little more. Just their interactions are a little more assertive on her part the does ale make you have courage and he kind of just smirks and doesn't answer that whole scene i thought was pretty nice between the two of them are we calling her we've probably seen this that she's now being called goth sansa which is sort of (laughs) i mean which had to do with her costume change when she was sort of disguised as someone else back in the area but also i think it refers to the new slightly more ballsy sansa and we're all i think a little grateful (laughs) <laughs> to see Sansa standing up for herself. To be fair to Sansa, she started the show as an idiot, mm-hmm. and she has had to endure an awful lot. And much like Arya, she's starting finally to deal with the, shall we say, meal she's been given to eat. And she's showing some change and some fighting back and some, you know, response to this. And it's good, it's good to see. I also really love Podrick as paparazzi. Paparazzi? This is, this is two subsequent episodes where he has spotted Starks in disguise. <laughs> Which is just really fun for him to be like, oh, that's Sansa right over there. That's her. There's this thing about Podrick, which I was reminded of in this episode where they're with a serving. I guess you call them serving wenches. Yes. In this context (laughs) comes over. 
a staple of your boy-dominated fantasy fiction, your serving wench, and he gives her this grin, and it reminded me of that absolutely bizarre moment in, I think it was season three, where they send Podrick into the brothel, <laughs> and all the women are like, oh, my God. You know, I, I saw the seven heavens. I, it was just crazy. And you're like, wait a minute, what? What did you do to them? Lots of things. And they seem to like these things? Yes, well, of course they seem to like it. They're paid to seem to like it. Only they weren't paid. What are you saying? These ladies enjoyed him so much, they gave him the time for free. Is that what you're telling us? Sit down, Podrick. <clears throat> We're going to need details. Copious details. And, and oh, so Podrick's there's a babe. Podrick, wait a minute. Oh, seriously. You're telling me yeah. that you're looking at Podrick and going, hubba hubba? I mean, I, I don't usually say hubba hubba, but I think Podrick <laughs> is a total babe. And it's partly from watching Skins. Oh, he was in Skins and I loved him. Oh, He's okay. adorable. So, yeah. But there's this wonderful little thing like Podrick, can I just be frank, apparently... The implication is, is that Podrick, for all his sort of niceness and occasional shyness, he's a lady in the street and a freak in the bed. He has got, he has got, a, he's is. got a two-handed broadsword down there. <laughs> yeah, is man. what we're saying. Yep. He's a babe. Yeah, <laughs> he's a babe. That's not what, you, but that's not what you mean when you say he's a babe. <laughs> <laughs> all right, moving on. Anything else you guys liked? I Greta did not like Dorn. No, yeah. I think Dorn is boring. I think Why Dorn is, is really see now boring. Dorn is boring. <laughs> but Dor- but here's, here's a book thing. We warned this earlier that I would be talking about the books. Let me briefly refer to what is called the book four problem, which is that the first three books came out. Those were more or less the end where last season ended with the death of Tywin Lannister and the departure of Tyrion and some various other plot points that arrive. Book four, Feast of Crows, caused the fans a tremendous amount of angst and disappointment for a lot of reasons which we won't get into here. But one of them was that so much of it takes place in Dorne further with new characters we don't know. And then George R. R. Martin makes the decision, which nicely the show seems to have put aside, to send entirely new characters down to Dorne to deal with people there. Instead, the showrunners are going to send our old friends, Jamie F. and Lannister, and <laughs> my favorite character, Bronn the Sellsword. Oh, look at these two shining warriors. Sir Tarin Mant and uh, Sir Who's It of Who Cares? Sir Merrin Trant. Sabron of the Blackwater. You're no knight. Pod. Sabron of the Blackwater was anointed by the king himself. You're an up-jumped cutthroat. Nothing more. That's exactly who I am. And you're a grub in fancy armor who's better at beating little girls than fighting men. Given that Dorne is in fact dull in the books, why do you think it was dull in the TV show? I understand its necessity in terms of moving the plot forward. Right. But it feels extraneous to me. You know, it's just one of those moments where, like, I'm watching them complain and I'm thinking, why can't we be watching someone else doing something? Well, apparently, and this is my guess, that the showrunners have chosen that Jamie's at least initial primary mission, if you will, his plot line will be the journey to Dorne to retrieve his daughter. We've already set up with that scene with Cersei that it is his daughter, but he does not know her. He has never been a father to her. As he says, if I was a father to I'd her, we'd, stoned in the streets. we'd be dead. So give me a break, please. Yeah. Yes, we, <laughs> we divorced dads, had a little moment with that, you know? <laughs> so he's apparently going to go down to Dorne. So we needed to set up what's going on in Dorne. And what's going on in Dorne is we have a new character, 
Oberon's brother, the Lord of Dorne, I forget his name. Oh, that's Prince Doran Martell. Thank you, Prince Doran Martell. Like you knew that and you didn't just look at the computer. No, ma'am, I knew. So we're setting up what's down there. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, yeah. You did not know. So we're setting up what's down there. So Jamie and Bron are going to head down there. And it's going to be, I hope, interesting and totally new to we readers of the books, which I'm also excited about. Totally new to us readers of the books. Don't write in. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I feel like we need to spend some time with Cersei discussing what happened with her this time around. That scene at the table where she's sitting and talking with a whole bunch of old white guys. Yes. Okay. I liked that, obviously, because I am an old white guy. I thought they did a uh, more old white guys. This is why I liked it. Uh, First of all, they did a good job of introducing a character who we saw last week. This is Tywin's brother, who's sort of the crusty old British guy. They're all old British guys. Uh, Kevan or Kevin, whatever you want to call him. Kevin. Kevin something. (laughs) Kieran Culkin. I don't know. (laughs) And his attitude and his role in it, I'm pleased that it's going to see it. I like Cersei because Cersei has so far been such a behind-the-scenes character in terms of her manipulations of other people. Now she's going forward and she's laying things out. Keep in mind, she comes off as being really strong the way she totally handles everybody else at that table, including that wonderful old maester and what's-his-name from Highgarden. So she tells Lord Tyrell that uh, he gets to not only be the master of ships, but the master of coin, and she says, because the king thinks you're just the best there ever was. And he goes like, ooh, well, ooh, ooh, thank you. (laughs) And this grown man is dumb enough to think that the 11-year-old who's the king actually used the words like, you are an indispensable part of his administration. So you show that Cersei is actually dealing, as they say. She's a baller. She's ready to move into this position of influence. And the fact that Kevan, we're going to call him, gave her some pushback just makes for more interesting down the road. It would have been a less interesting scene if if he had just said, okay. And such a realistic, I think, family power struggle. We talk a lot about the struggle for power between these families, but sometimes it's the power struggles within them that are as interesting as anything else. With the Lannisters, it's almost always that because they can't stand each other. (laughs) And this uncle who's coming in and he's always had to play second fiddle as the son to this terrifying, you know, patriarch of his family. And now he's got to deal with this from Cersei? Yeah. He's not having any of it. Yeah, yeah. She's like, no, you get to be master of war and it'll be fun. And, you know, but the diplomatic mission that I just sent my brother on, you don't get to know about that. Yeah. And he goes, peace out. He's like, I'm not dealing with this. You're the queen mother and nothing else. It would have been totally hilarious had he said, peace out. Peace out. (laughs) If he drops the mic. It would be great. It's like, you can let me know. I shall be at Casterly Rock. Peace out. Yo. Sorry, I was confusing it with Saturday Night Live. South Centros. That'd be very funny. (laughs) South Centros, that's what they say. Game of Thrones, HBO's epic series, has taken you through the seven kingdoms of Westeros. But this season, we introduce an eighth kingdom South Centros. With a special appearance by Ice Cube. You ever pass the wall? Hell yeah. I ain't scared of no Lannisters. What they gonna do to me? I'm breeding dire wolves. Right back there. Dire wolves. Well, 
Well, and Tricia, you mentioned that you, at least as we were talking a little bit before, that you found this to be kind of a sexist statement. And I was completely realistic in the world. My thought, and I don't know if maybe this is where we go into like Greta justifying sexism, but Cersei is insane. That's a spinoff podcast. Yeah, it has a jingle. Greta Greta justifies sexism with Greta Johnson. (laughs) No, but seriously, like, I don't think that's sexist. That woman is nuts. He called her on completely misbehaving. I don't know that that's necessarily sexist to be like, hey, crazy power hungry lady who says that her kid is making all these decisions when obviously that's not what's happening and you're arbitrarily doing whatever you want and you're insane. I don't think he said she was insane. No, but you you know what I mean, though. I mean, there's does that count as sexism? Well, it does, but here's why. Because it's structural more than it's in that moment. Because the only reason there's a title called Queen Mother that isn't just queen is because women aren't ruling. Right. In the first season, if when she killed her husband, the king, if she got to be queen, that was where the sexism starts for Cersei, right? Right. Sure. We are living in a, shall we say, strongly patriarchal society. <laughs> yeah. And most of, I'm assuming you ladies agree, because you're still watching the show into season five, that you forgive the terrible treatment of women because it is, and we use this term advisedly, historically accurate, meaning that sure. it represents a world much like our own medieval European world in which women were second-class citizens doesn't go far enough. We're essentially chattel, and the only reason they existed was so that men could have claim to their male descendants by owning that uterus over there. That, that uterus didn't go anywhere, so I know that the baby came out of it. I mean, that's, I mean it's, it's a terrible thing, but it's true to that world. And I assume you guys accept that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because also it would be disingenuous if the world of the show, I guess it's a fantasy world, so it could, but if the world of the show is meant to have all these parallels to our own world, yeah. and if those gender dynamics weren't at play, yeah. then it wouldn't be as easy to talk about it as it relates to our own politics, which we might do later today, right. and other things like that. I think it's important for the show, like we talked about last week, to understand when it's playing with those ideas and when it's not. Totally fair. So I've had enough with King's Landing. All right, do you guys want to go north or south? I want to go across the narrow sea. All right, I let's bet you do did, it. Because I know Bravos. you guys are big. Oh, Bravos. I know you guys are really excited about Arya. It was nice to see her again. I was excited to see her. Although I have a complaint. <gasps> go on. What a big surprise. Yay. Because there's this thing. Arya shows up at the House of Black and White and they... Don't let her go in. And she sits out there for a day and then she throws away the coin and then she wanders off. And then she like has this, by the way, total badass move in the pigeon. Yes. (laughs) And then she's almost going to kill these guys or maybe have a fight. And then all of a sudden the guy who turns out to be our old friend Jacqueline Hagar pulls off his face and welcomes her in. What did she do to make him change his mind about her in their intervening time? I can't think of anything. She did not sit outside the doors and weep and feel bad for herself. She did for a while, and then she left. She did for a while. She did, I don't think she cried. She didn't cry. No, she read her yeah, creepy she list of people. List, yeah. she over and over again for like yeah. at least a day. Yeah. And then she got up and said, well, to hell with it. I mean, if, if they had like, if they had waited like two days and she's wasting away out there and they said, well, clearly you are devoted to this. I would have yeah. bought that. If she had like killed the bad guys or totally badass yeah, shown that them, she was awesome. Yeah. yeah, maybe that. If she had in a kind way, sort of in a weird way, refused to do that because she's smarter than she's brutal, I'll buy that. She didn't do anything. She killed that pigeon pretty well. She (laughs) survived. She survived. She took care of herself. So it's like, go knock on the door of the House of Black and White, and then hang out a couple days, and we'll run into you and say, come on in. We'll just change our mind, because we're an arbitrary death cult. Yeah. (laughs) This is one of my bigger questions about the way the show portrays time, though, is it's unclear sometimes 
what amount of time has gone by between those scenes. Yeah. So whenever we leave a character and come back, I always assume that it's somewhat contiguous. Yeah. But if the showrunners were basically saying, oh, she's been surviving on her own in the streets for weeks or months and showing how scrappy she is and learned to survive, but we just didn't have time to show you that because we were busy with a horse chase over here. Yeah. And so in the length of this episode, I wonder if it ended up on the editing room floor that Arya hadn't spent four days in Bravos, she'd spent four weeks or four months in Bravos. The pigeon surviving, killing montage. Killing the pigeons. Yeah, yeah, the pigeon killing montage got cut down to one pigeon killing. That would have been awesome if they just had her killing <laughs> a lot of really pigeons sweet. while they played like some fancy sword where they played Well, they played like the Rocky theme. That would have been awesome. <laughs> so I wonder if that would be a justification for it is that we're meant to assume she's been surviving in Bravos for long enough now that they've decided, okay, now you can come in. Because in the books, right, she spends a lot of time sort of as a street urchin child, yeah. killing pigeons, selling them, doing this kind of thing. It just bugged me. Yeah. Oh, by the way, in much the same way that you're getting a little tired of Brienne and Podrick moping about, mm. I'm getting a little tired of Varys and Tyrion. In various yeah. boxes. Yeah. In various I boxes. I mean, I kind of liked the conti- like a new box where he was getting yeah. drunk. It's I a very was nice fun. box. But yeah, they need to be out of boxes yeah. next time around. <laughs> yeah, sure. the, the whole scene where they're riding along in the strangely large carriage train car sized box yeah Yeah. although you know to be fair in the book they have these things called wheelhouses which probably be very hard to pull a friend of mine once said to me many many years ago about a scene i'd written a play he's like you should take that scene that you love so much and you should cut it out and you should pin it on your bathroom mirror so you get to look at it every morning (laughs) and i felt the way about that scene some writer is like oh look at the metaphor i'm working with the boxes and yeah it was a little on different points of view about you know their role as outsiders and people who can't hold power but can manipulate power i'm like that's a great scene for you to Put in your bathroom mirror and let's get on with some sword fights. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. I am still just so excited for Tyrion to actually meet Danny. It's probably not going to happen for like 17 episodes, but I look forward to that day. When we come back, we will talk about Jon Snow. We will talk about, of course, Danny, as we like to call her, because we imagine ourselves to be friends. If we hung with her, <laughs> we'd say, hey, Danny, none of this Khaleesi nonsense for us. We're tight, we're homies. And, of course, we will discuss the incredibly important relationship between Game of Thrones and the upcoming presidential election. Listening to Nerdette Recaps Game of Thrones with Peter Segel. I'm Greta Johnson here with Trisha Bobita and Peter Segel. We still have a couple of characters that we need to discuss we before do. we get to this presidential. S- somewhere out there situation. in the fictional ether, they feel bad because we haven't talked about them. You think so? Mm-hmm. They are two of maybe the most important, also, they which are. is fine. And so far, the audience knows nothing of Jon Snow. Had to do it, it was a little <laughs> required. Okay. No, okay, nothing, Jon Snow. Fine. Moving yeah, on. What's going fine. on in the North, Greta? What's going on in the North is. Stannis is pissed at John for killing Mance Raider. Not as pissed as I thought he would be. That's yeah. true. I mean, yeah, not super pissed because he says, if you pledge your fealty to me, I'll give you Winterfell, which yeah. was interesting. Did anyone, I'm curious, you know, for people who didn't read the books, did you think that he was going to take that up? Was there any question in your mind that Jon Snow would be like, you know what? Screw the Night's Watch. I'm going to take <laughs> Winterfell. As John then says to Sam in conversation, this is all I've ever dreamed of. Yeah. I dreamed of my father taking me to the king and making me a Stark. And there's a king, maybe not the king, but a king willing to do it. So that was a, a fine test of John's mettle. 
as it were. What's interesting to me is what would have happened? How would that scene that followed have played where Sam gets, manipulates, well, convinces the other <laughs> brothers in the Night's Watch to elect John their commander if they hadn't had that conversation in which John says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to take it, right? What if John hadn't said that? Oh, wow, I've always dreamed of this. I don't know what to do. And then Sam got him elected to be commander of the Night's Watch because Sam would have solved his problem without asking him if he wanted it solved, which would have been maybe more interesting, but it would have put mm-hmm. Sam in a different light than I think a lot of us would have appreciated. I think that Sam's courage always comes from John, that he's his big brother in the Night's Watch in a way, and that taking the vows and doing things and being brave, he always wants to be as brave as John or try to be as brave as John. He's not going to be as good a fighter, but he can try to be as good at being on the Night's Watch as John in his own way if he stays true to the vows. And so that moment, that reiteration that I took a vow, that means something, I think for Sam meant that he had to then do what he knew was best for the Night's Watch. Because it wasn't just that he thought it was best for John. I think he genuinely thinks it would be better for everyone if John was in charge and that they'd be more likely to survive. And he also has a wildling girl, Gilly, with him who is... I mean, it was nice that somebody pointed that out, but I've been watching this for the first two episodes, (laughs) this supposedly monastic brotherhood where, let alone women, but sex is not allowed. (laughs) And he's like, oh yeah, here I am with my girlfriend. We're just hanging out. Yeah, we're just hanging out in the library. I don't know, though, if anyone was actually not doing it, it could, like, I could picture it being Sam and Gilly, right? Right. Like, (laughs) maybe they're just together and, like, not doing that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you think that's like Isn't actually one of the in relation- the realm of possibility? One of the, I was about to say it's like a relationship in which, you know, basically Gilly keeps Sam around because he helps her with her homework. But yeah, we exactly. just saw that, in fact, she doesn't like it when she <laughs> help, he helps her with her homework. I loved Sam sort of taking down um, the former commander of the Night's Watch. Oh, the bald so guy. Oh, yeah. The bald guy yeah. with a beard. Yeah. That in a was puddle good. of his own making. Oh, that was awesome. Hiding with my girlfriend. Interestingly, there was an, an article on Vox that said that Jon Snow is the least interesting character in the show because he never does anything, which is so stupid. <laughs> And somebody pointed out to me that by reacting to it online, I therefore fell into their trap of become being clickbait. But it is interesting to think, especially as we move on to Danny to finish up this episode, how both John and Danny are almost literally in the same problem, which is that they're both going to be in charge and they're both are like the last two characters who are trying to live by a code. Mm-hmm. And it's getting them into trouble, as we see with Danny and her decision to have her former slave advisor executed for the murder, which is just like what Rob Stark did a few seasons ago with poor old Richard Carstark, and i.e. that she's trying to say, look, I rule by law, I am all about justice, and this is what justice requires, and people don't like it yeah. at all. That line when he's when the former slave advisor to Danny is begging for his life after they find out that he's killed the harpy and done it in the streets in a very public way right. to put a message out there exactly the opposite of what Danny has decided she wants to do after getting counsel from others. And he says, it used to be that the masters were the law. Now you're the law. And she says, the law is the law, you which know, is confusing to me because – there's not some constitution that got written. She's just the law now. She, but yeah. she has this notion that whatever she says is then somehow divorced from her as a person. Right. And the people in the streets, and this, that was a pretty cool scene when they start hissing at her, yeah. don't dig it. Because they're like, you're the queen. You get to do it. You're the law. Exactly. And they are completely, as I think somebody points out to her, right, quite explicitly, there is no law here. There was the masters and the slaves, and the masters did what they want, and that's what people are used to. 
when she says to them, well, I have to kill him or have him killed because that's the law, they're like, what? You don't have to do anything. Right. You're the queen and we want you to be that person. And I will point out something interesting, I thought, which is that there's that scene where she's sitting there with her counselors, right? And they're all giving her this advice, all of which is sort of, well, not great and certainly not really smart. But it's like, I think there should be a trial. I think I should kill him. And so she's like, hmm. And then she makes a bad decision. Do you know what it seems like to me? She could use a better advisor. If only there was somebody heading her way hmm. who was pretty smart about this sort of thing. Hmm. <laughs> An empty chair at that table now, conveniently. A small one, but maybe longer legs, so it's a little higher. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> yeah, I think that's going to be good. I feel like someone needs to call her on her BS in a way that she just hasn't been yet. Yes. And I'm so excited for that person to be Tyrion. It'll I think be pretty it's awesome. Be and this is, again, a change from the books. It takes an awfully long time with a lot of interruptions on other characters for Tyrion to get close to Daenerys in book five. And obviously the writers are moving that along much quicker, and I think to good reason. To good purpose for the story, and also because we all love Peter Dinklage, and otherwise we wouldn't see him all season. That's right. Because he has nowhere else to go, or really nothing else to do in terms of the plot until he gets there. Right. So that's all to the good. Speaking of politics, I do want to address something that I'm sure everybody is thinking about, especially as we go into the 2016 campaign season gets going, which is if the 2016 presidential contenders were Game of Thrones characters, who would they be? <laughs> and uh, I have your answer. This is as, is all of my statements totally factual. Yep, time for facts with Peter. <laughs> because what happened was, is Chris Silizia, who's the politics blogger and very smart guy on the Washington Post, wrote an utterly stupid Uh-oh. thing, which is that he said that, I believe it's like Marco Rubio was the Cal Drogo mm. of the presidential campaign. I remember that's absolutely idiotic. <laughs> So stupid. Because first of all, yeah, why, Kyle Peter? Dr- tell let us me why. tell you why. Because first of all, if you're mapping the presidential candidates who want, you know, the White House to the various candidates in Westeros who want the Iron Throne, Cal Drogo is not a candidate. He's he not is even an external yeah. force who one of the candidates wanted to use to get him the Iron Throne. Cal Drogo clearly is the Koch brothers. Oh, good. I was just about to <laughs> Thank ask you. who is Colin Drogo. He's, he's oh, the Koch okay, brother. He's yeah. an external person that somebody goes to and says, I need your support to take the Iron Throne or the White House. So let okay. me just go through this very quickly. Okay. So Jeb Bush is Stannis. Fair. This one he's, I actually don't disagree with. Stannis, of course, brother of a former uh, holder of power, mm-hmm. feels mm-hmm. his claim is legitimate, feels it's, shall we say, dynastical, that he has the most logical claim to the throne. He's not very charming. But nope. he seems at least serious and sane. He, I think we can say this about Jeb Bush. He embraces a monotheistic god. He does, which is important. <laughs> Religious structure. Right, right. As we all know, Jeb Bush married a Colombian woman, which gives him a different perspective than the other candidates have. And, of course, that's, you know, analogous to Melisandre. Sure. So I think we got going there. So everybody agrees with me. Christy. Chris, <laughs> so everybody agrees with me. Everybody it. agrees with me. <laughs> yes. Chris Christie is Joffrey. Nope. Hang Go with ahead. me here. Go All right. Ahead. This is why, because everybody hates him. <laughs> and there was a period of time, right, where he clearly, I'm not talking about Christie, had the best claim on the throne. Everybody was like, it's going to be Chris Christie. Remember in 2012, all these like Rupert Murdoch was like, Chris Christie, you have to run for president because you're the most obvious person to be president. So there was a period in which he was going to be the guy. He had the claim on the throne, except everybody hates him. He's a petulant child. Joffrey, Right. And, of course, he's not dead. But, you know, we can only take these so far. (laughs) Rand Paul is Renly. 
I like this one too. Rand Paul is Renly. Renly is a colorful character who's very different from all the others, who has a very different power base. It's far away. He's got a very different style. He's combative, but in a different way. He's smarter than the other guys, or at least he thinks he is, right? So that's Renly. I'm not saying Rand Paul's going to be murdered by a shadow. I'm just saying that's his thing. <laughs> With the face of Jeb Bush. Walker. Well, well and also has that family connection. Yes. Like a, the Baratheon. Yes, there's a family. There's another dynasty that yep. he represents that nobody ever thought would take power, but he's coming in saying, I'm going to take power. Okay. There's Walker, Scott Walker. Is Balon Greyjoy. I like this one a lot. <laughs> Comes from a cold, faraway place. Very severe. <laughs> yep. Okay. Scott Walker is a guy, what's his claim to fame? He beat down the unions, the public unions. He beat down the protesters. He's a survivor. He's mean. His public persona is, I will, like, absolutely punch out the people you hate. So yep. that's his Take thing. He's not, nice he's yeah. not a nice man. He's not a nice man. But he's an effective guy. That's his claim. Okay. Moving down the list. Rubio is Rob. Rob Stark. Because he is charming. He is a pleasant person. It's very hard to dislike Marco Rubio. He looks good. You know, he's young. He's the youngest of these guys. He's also totally doomed. (laughs) Marco Rubio is not going to be president of the United States. I'm not saying he's going to be brutally murdered, but he's not going to be president of the United States. And, of course, need I say, Hillary is Daenerys. Because she represents the restoration of a prior regime, she's operating in a completely different environment than the others. And in a way, it's really all the other guys have been competing to see who is going to face off against her. Hmm. Because she's, she's her enemy is all the other guys. Well, all the other guys are fighting each other. So there you go. The Game of Thrones explainer for the 2016 presidential election. My <laughs> one question about that is, and I would just like us to think about this for a minute, especially since Hillary's in the race. Mm-hmm. Who are her dragons? Or what are her dragons? What are her dragons? Well, there's John Podesta. <laughs> Not very dragon-like. Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, because the metaphors get difficult. The are meta- you, are I mean, you trying to figure out how to say, I don't know? Oh, well, Is yeah. that what you're trying to do? I, right I have never said those words in my life, Greta, and I'm not starting now. Well, I mean, there is a potential analogy, because one of the things you've got going on with Daenerys in the show is she's got this tremendous source of power, which she's kind of lost touch with. Exactly. Right? And she thinks she has everybody in lockstep behind her, but then when she says, hey— Women's vote. I need you to just fall in lockstep behind my candidacy. Exactly. They're going to breathe fire. Or the African-American vote or the youth vote, all of which propelled Barack Obama, known as the Mad King, to power. (laughs) You know, or let's let's say Barack Obama is Aegon the Conqueror. So Aegon the Conqueror came in 300 years ago with these dragons, kicked butt, took over, right? And what were the dragons were sort of this youthful voting base, the (laughs) African-Americans, the ethnic minorities, women. So it's the question, can Hillary Clinton, a.k.a. Daenerys, somehow grab herself this power base, these effective weapons against all the others, with which she would be invincible. But can she handle it? Will they like her? Will they come back to her? Hey, I am making this work. (laughs) I liked it. Thank you. I thought it was the voting blocks were the dragons, so I'm glad you agree. Well, that's sort of what I said. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So it's your idea. (laughs) Okay, let's be done talking. We do want the rest of you to join in on this conversation. The number to join the conversation is 312-948-4687. Tell us what you're thinking about the latest season of Game of Thrones. Tell us what you want us to talk about. That number again, 312-948-4687. And hey, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. 
While you're there, we'd also be ever so grateful if you could rate and review us. We've got to thank reviewer Podcastinista for the kind words on iTunes. And you can find us on Stitcher and SoundCloud. That's also where you can catch Game of Thrones recaps as well as Nerdette proper. We have more than 70 episodes on Nerdette with awesome people like Miranda July and Margaret Atwood and Richard Linklater. Just search for Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at wbeasy.org slash Recaps. We're Nerdette Podcast on Twitter. He's Peter Sagal, and we are so grateful that he's spending time with us every week nerding out about Game of Thrones. I feel you should be. <laughs> <laughs> the show is produced by us with help from our WBEZ cohort, especially Joe Dassault, Colleen Pellissier, and Brad Helm. Our theme music was composed by Andrew Edwards of Blue Police Box Music. See you Monday, nerds. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.